I want you to think uh, for a moment this morning about the word assurance. Assurance means solid confidence, certainty. It's something that seems uh, to be increasingly difficult to come by in today's age as objective truth has been replaced by subjective experience as as the lens through which we understand our world and our place within our world. And this isn't only true of, of the world out there. Our assurance as believers is attacked often on at least a couple of fronts. We all carry those internal doubts and fears and struggles that, that impact the way that we view God and the way that we view ourselves in relation to God. And that's uh, compounded by a world filled with a million voices and entities and even good things that are continually vying for our attention and for our worship. One of the things that I've discovered when it comes to this idea of assurance is that there are a couple different ways that we tend to struggle with assurance. The obvious way is through doubt. Doubt can arise when we face trials, when we face hardships in life. Sometimes it's when we're, we're hurt by someone, especially someone who claims to be a Christian, and so it causes us to wonder, to question, to doubt. Other times, uh, this doubt is because we begin to wander from the Lord. We distance ourselves from Christ and His church, and we begin to find our identity, our purpose, our meaning in other things, in worshiping something else. And of course, Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters. That's just reality. One master, one idol, one object of our worship will always fight for first place. And so doubts arise. Other times these doubts come about because we know that we're making choices that are not honoring to the Lord. And so to be able to sleep at night, we begin to question the credibility of God's word, of what God has said to be true, or, or maybe the very existence of God in the first place. That's one type of lack of assurance that we can experience as Christians. And the other is equally or maybe even more dangerous, and that's placing our assurance in the wrong things. Trusting in our own morality, our own distorted sense of self-goodness, in the things that we do for the Lord. This false assurance was spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. If you remember those hard words in Matthew chapter 7, listen to what Jesus said. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says that, that we aren't saved, that our assurance isn't found, that we aren't made right with God 
based on what we do for God. Because the reality is, most of the things that we do for God really are focused on earning merit, on earning bonus points in the eyes of God. And so they aren't really done for God after all. They're done for us. And so any assurance that's found in the things that we do for God, in our morality, in our behavior, is always going to be false and empty assurance. And often this is the most dangerous error when it comes to assurance because people pat us on the back when we do good things. When we are good, we feel like we've really done something good. And we don't even know that we are worshiping ourselves rather than God. Our text today from Genesis deals with the theme of assurance and with the idea of justification. We'll talk about more in a little bit. I want to give a little bit of context in where we're at in the story before we jump into chapter 15. We left off last week in Genesis chapter 13 with this parting of ways between Abram and his nephew Lot. Abram trusted the Lord's promises and Lot trusted his eyes. And he set up his camp near Sodom. In chapter 14 that we're skipping over this week, there are two allied groups of kings in the region and they go to war against one another and Lot gets caught up in this and is taken captive. Abram hears about it and he leads a group of 318 trained soldiers on a rescue mission to capture Lot. The mission is successful and they return and and when they return Abram meets up with this mysterious Melchizedek character. He's called the king of Salem. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and he blesses Abram. I would encourage you if you have time to read Genesis 14 this week. Spend some time there. It's a good chapter. But today we're going to move forward into chapter 15. And Abram is going to, we'll see in our text today, Abram is going to struggle with assurance. He looks at his circumstances and he's struggling to believe the promises of God. And so I would invite you to stand if you're able as I read Genesis chapter 15. And I would remind you as I do each week that this is God's word to us. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, 
along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that, that four or four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we are grateful for your inerrant, living, and powerful word. As your word speaks, may you give us soft hearts to receive from you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today from Genesis chapter 15 hits squarely on the question of whether God can be trusted and where we find our assurance. So allow me to share three gifts that we receive as believers from Genesis chapter 15. The first gift is this, an invitation to express our doubts to the Lord. Look at verse 2. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. God speaks to Abram, and Abram's response is sort of a, a, a respectful and heartfelt expression of confusion, of doubt. God had previously promised to make Abram into a great nation, and that through him all people would be blessed. And of course, that required a, a offspring, that required a son. But from Abram's perspective, that window had closed. And he expresses that to God. He says, I, I'm childless, and the one who will inherit my state is Eleazar of Damascus. This simple interchange between Abram and God might be something that we have the tendency to just read over pretty quickly, but don't, don't make that mistake. There's an important gift to be found here. This passage gives us permission. It invites us to express our fears, our doubts, our struggles, our unbelief, our lack of assurance to God. The reality is that God knows your thoughts already. He knows your doubts. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows what you're fearful of. And he would have every right in the world to, to scold us, to say, all that I've done for you, and you keep 
doubting me like this over and over. That's how most of us would respond if we were God. Thankfully, we aren't. God responds instead with mercy. He responds like a loving father, longing for us to express our our feelings, our doubts, our fears to him. And notice how God responds in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And God takes uh, Abram outside and he says, Look up at the stars if you could actually count them, that's how many offspring you'll have. God says, no, Abram, my promise is still true. One who comes from within you, your own flesh and blood will be your heir. My promise remains in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your old age, in spite of what you can see or can't see with your eyes. My promise remains. God leads Abram outside and directs him to look at the stars and renews that promise that Abram's offspring would be as numerous as those stars. God didn't lecture him. God didn't rebuke him for his doubt. We've all experienced this doubt to one degree or another. Attention. Because what God says doesn't feel true. Our circumstances cause us to doubt. God's commands at times feel unreasonable. Or maybe we've just been in the waiting room of life for so long that waiting for an answer that we just don't know what we believe. We don't know what could ever be true. And the beauty of our passage today is that the answer for those seasons and those moments of doubt is not just to suck it up and and figure it out. We have an invitation to to take our doubt, to bring our struggles and our fears and our lack of assurance to the Lord and to tell him, to express it to him. It's such a gift in our text today. Now let's look at the second gift. Second gift is this, a, a declaration that we are justified by faith. How does Abram respond to this renewal of God's promise? Our text says that he believes. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This should be one of your new favorite verses. If this isn't underlined in your Bible, it should be. You can make a really strong argument that this is the single most important verse in the Old Testament. The previous 14 chapters of Genesis... We've seen promises or glimpses of God's promise to save. But but here in chapter 15, in in verse 6, we have something entirely new, something we haven't seen yet. We have the first mention of what the New Testament will call justification by faith. Justification might not be a word that you use every day, and so I want to take a minute to help us understand it a little bit. At the heart of justification is the question of how we are made right with God. How is our relationship with God fixed? We are sinners and on our own we stand condemned before God. And so both Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 2 wrestle with this question 
of whether it's possible for us to be made right with God, for our relationship with God to be fixed by obedience or by good behavior or, or by uh, works of the law. And the consensus, the, the answer that we find in both of those letters is that no, we cannot be justified, we cannot be made right with God by works of the law, by obedience to the law. And both of those letters then go on as they're making sense of this, as they're fleshing this out, to quote our passage for today. And so I would encourage you to write down Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, if you're a, if you're a note taker. It begins with a simple question. Paul asks the question, who has bewitched you? Who has fooled you? Who has deceived you? Who has convinced you that you can be made right with God by your own good works? And he builds toward, quoting our passage for today, where he will write, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A direct quote from Genesis chapter 15. And then write down Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Listen to these words, starting in verse 1. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then our, our passage for today is quoted. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then Paul says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God responds to Abram's doubt and struggle and lack of assurance with a promise. And when Abram believes the promise of God, he is justified. He is made right. It is credited to him as righteousness, as if he had actually obeyed, as if he had perfectly trusted. And this is good news for doubters like you and me. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he acquits me a repentant and believing sinner of my sin and guilt, and he credits me with Christ's righteousness. And he looks upon me in Christ as though I had never sinned. The, the, the fullness of this, the fullness of justification, isn't realized yet in Genesis chapter 15. While we look back upon the cross, where the power of justification was was. Uh, made certain, Abram looked forward to the cross. But the New Testament witness remains clear. Abram was justified by faith. He believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness, as if he had perfectly obeyed, as if he had never doubted or sinned. Martin Luther says, that this doctrine, this understanding of justification by faith is that upon which the church stands and falls. 
and that from which all other doctrines flow. He said, it is the master and the prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all other doctrine. We see so clearly right here in Genesis 15 how we are made right with God. How we receive the righteousness of God. It is by faith, not by works. There is no message more critical for you and for me today. That you cannot be made right with God. You cannot be saved and redeemed by works, by morality, by obedience, by behavior. We are only made right with God. We are only justified by faith and faith alone. Well, I've mentioned uh, two gifts that we receive from our text. An invitation to express our doubts to the Lord, a declaration that we are justified by faith. And third, we receive a guarantee that God is true to his promises. Immediately following this declaration of justification by faith, we find Abram asking for a sense of clarity, a sense of assurance. This isn't a test. Abram doesn't say, Lord, do this or else I won't believe you. The question is, how, how will I know that I will possess the land that you've promised? And so God instructs Abram to do something that, that we undoubtedly find confusing or at least strange. Verse 9, God tells Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two and arranged them in halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. This Ceremony probably doesn't mean a lot to us today. In fact, we probably, we should find it pretty strange. But this was a fairly common practice in the ancient world. We see this at least one other time in the scriptures. And there are a number of extra-biblical accounts of this happening in the ancient Near East. Animals would be sacrificed, would be cut in two and placed opposite each other and then an agreement would be made between two parties in the middle of those animals. The phrase cutting a covenant is still spoken of today and this is literally an example of cutting a covenant. Two parties pledge to follow through upon their agreement with one another and if they don't their fate will be that of the animals between which they are making the agreement. If they don't follow through, what they're saying is, we agree to be cut in two. This covenant arrangement is set up. Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and God foretells the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt, and also the, the exodus in which the people would be delivered. These descendants of Abram would be a nation, and they will return to this promised land. But what's interesting about this particular covenant, I don't know if you noticed that at this point in the story, is that it's really more of a, of a promise than a covenant, right? Theologians call this a unilateral covenant. It's a one-sided covenant. God does the promising. Look at verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. 
God appears as, as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. And he makes his unilateral one-way covenant with Abram and his descendants between those pieces of the sacrifice. We, we don't know the exact symbolism of the fire pot and the torch. There's a whole bunch of guesses out there. You can Google it if you're interested. Everybody has an explanation. But it really doesn't make all that much difference. God goes between the pieces that had been laid out. He promises upon his own death that all that he has declared, all that he has promised to Abram will come about. In the weeks ahead, we'll see how the details of God's relationship with Abram through this covenant will evolve as we move forward. But it's, it's so important to note that the aim The purpose of the covenant is not just for Abram. It's not just for Abram's descendants. It's it's not just about offspring and land and and blessing. This one-way covenant promise that God made to Abram is intended to point forward to another one-way covenant that God would make. God would send his son who would be offered up for the sin of Abram and of you and me. Remember on that night that Jesus was betrayed. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He he took a cup full of wine, and when he had that cup in his hand, he offered it to his disciples. And do you remember what he said? He said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This new and eternal covenant would be sealed in the blood of the Son of God. When deep darkness would come over all the land and Jesus' blood was poured out, the the covenant was confirmed, etched in stone, guaranteed. And what was The covenant. What is this new covenant that Jesus spoke of? What was the core promise that was made? For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then hear these words. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's this new covenant about which Jesus spoke. In other words, you are justified, just like Abram, you are justified by faith in God's promise. God had established his covenant, foreshadowed with Abram, and and once and for all secured through the blood of Christ. That is the source of our assurance. Jesus shedding his blood, dying for your sin, is, is the source of your assurance. It is the guarantee. You can live with full and complete confidence and assurance and hope because Jesus died promising that whoever believes in him, will not be condemned. If our salvation, if your salvation, depended upon you 
If it was up to us, we would be damned. But God has placed it entirely upon himself. A unilateral, one-way covenant in which he's promised to hold on to us when we can't hold on to him. He's assured us that he is in control. He has promised and his promises can always be believed. So whatever our fears, whatever our struggles, our our doubts, our wandering, our sin, God is for you. God has made his covenant. He has promised. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And so all who believe are free to rest in his promises today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we confess that we so often struggle to believe. We are prone to doubt, prone to wander. One day our faith feels strong, we're confident. The next day it all seems to fall apart. So, Father, we're grateful for your gifts to us today in our text. Thank you that you've given us an invitation to express our doubts to you. It's such a gift. Thank you that you have declared that we are justified not by works, not by our behavior or our morality, but by faith alone. And Thank you for the guarantee that you are true to your promises. God, give us faith to believe. Help us to trust in you, to take you at your word. I pray for those this morning who are going through a particularly difficult season of doubt. May your word and your spirit be at work, helping us to trust. Give us assurance today. Send us from this place, resting in your promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.